Well, today is not only New Year's Day, it is also the first Sunday after Christmas and subsequently the eighth day of Christmas. As I hope you know, Christmas Day is not the twelfth day of Christmas. It is the first day of Christmas. So we who keep the church calendar are able to celebrate Christmas, the birth of our Savior, all the way into January. That's why my family keeps our tree up. We keep our lights on the front of the house up until, does anybody remember the day that we take all that down? Well, what's that? Epiphany. That's the one I was looking for. That's right. So this Friday will be the Epiphany. And Epiphany celebrates the arrival of the three magi to worship the young Jesus. And why is that event notable? The Epiphany celebrates that the birth of Jesus is good news, even for the Gentiles. So the magi weren't Jewish. They were probably pagans from Persia, Gentiles. So this holiday, Epiphany, should loom large for those of us who do not descend biologically from Abraham. It's good news for us. Jesus loves all the nations, and when he came, he came not only as king of the Jews, but as king of the whole world. Of course, the events of Epiphany have been immortalized in many a song, but perhaps none as familiar to me as we three kings of Orient are. That's been a favorite of mine since childhood. We Three Kings was written in 1857 by an Episcopal priest named John Henry Hopkins, Jr. And in Hopkins' day, it was customary to give gifts on Epiphany in addition to gifts on Christmas. And as he considered what to give his brother's children as a gift, he decided to write a song for them. And the gift that he gave his nephews and nieces in 1857 is today's song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Now, Hopkins' gift to his nieces and nephews, his song, we'll call it, uh, it's, it's imaginative. Of all the Christmas songs that I'm focusing on in this sermon series, this one is the most questionable in terms of content. Because his song kind of muddies some, some of the content of Scripture. For example, in the Bible, these guys are never called kings. The, the scripture calls them magi in the original Greek. It gets translated as, as wise men. More likely than not, these guys were astrologers or mystics from the East. The notion of them being kings is a tradition that, that developed later on. Also, we know that there was more than one of them because it's magi rather than a mage, right? And they brought three gifts... But it never actually says that there were three of these guys. We know that they were plural, and we know that they brought three gifts, but we don't technically know how many of them there are. So there are some imaginative details in the song, but I wouldn't call the song garbage. I actually did jettison one song from the sermon series because the more I dug into it, it really bordered on false teaching. And I don't really want to tell you which one it is because I don't want to ruin your Christmas uh, next year. We Three Kings doesn't go that far. There's still some really good stuff here. And the real gem in this song, from my perspective, is Hopkins' interpretation of the three gifts and what they meant. These three gifts, in a sense, reveal something about Jesus. And the way that Hopkins expresses that in his song is not only a a gift to his nieces and nephews, it's a gift also to us. So as we sing it together... Let's overlook the legendary and enjoy what can be learned, especially about these three gifts as we sing We Three Kings of Orionar. We Three Kings of Orionar 
bearing gifts we traverse afar, build and found and more and mountain, following yonder star, oh, star of wonder, star of life, star of royal beauty bright, westward Crown him again, King forever, ceasing never over us all to reign. Oh, star of wonder, star of light, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading still. Thy perfect life. Frankincense to offer have I, incense songs a deity nigh, prayer and praising all men raising, worship him God on high. Star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, us to thy perfect life. is mine its bitter perfume breeze of life of gathering gloom soaring sighing bleeding dying sealed in the stone cold tomb oh star of wonder star of night star with Still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect life. Glorious now, behold him arise, King and God and sacrifice. Hallelujah, Hallelujah. Earth to heaven replies, oh, star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, I 
So when we look at the story of the Magi, we are left with a number of questions, like who exactly are they? Where do they come from? Is this a star or a comet or a supernatural light? God didn't tell us super clearly about those things in the text because that's not the main point. He didn't want us to know that exactly or he would have told us. There's nothing wrong with wondering about it. That's fun. But there are other things in the text that are more clear. For Example, I think God wanted us to know about those specific gifts, and I think they do reveal something of Jesus. I think Hopkins does a great job of expressing the meaning behind those gifts. But there are a couple of other details in the passage that I think are relatively clear that we don't want to miss. Let's start with the basics. What's the big idea of the story? The big idea of the Magi narrative is that Israel's king is the king of the whole world. But where do we see that in our passage? Look back to chapter 2. Verses 1 and 2, and then we'll jump down to verse 9. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Verse 9. After listening to the king, Herod, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So when these Gentiles... Come looking for Jesus. Who do they say they're looking for? They said, we're looking for the king of the Jews. And what do they do as they kneel before him? They bring gifts fit for a king. They fall on their faces and they worship him. And all of this is a sign that Jesus is the king, not only of the Jews. Jesus is the king of all nations. He is their king. So he was born to rule and to reign, not just over Israel, but over the whole world. Now... This is a truth you see through the whole Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. God is the God of the whole world, and his king would be the king of the whole world. But in the context of this passage, this idea has two opposing implications. This idea of the worldwide kingship of Jesus, it brings up two opposing implications, and here they are. This message of the worldwide kingship of Jesus will always be offensive To people in power, it'll also uh, be offensive to the common man. Meanwhile, this message of the unrivaled worldwide kingship of Jesus invites the worship and joyful submission of all people, Jew and Gentile. And you can see both responses to Jesus' kingship in our text, right? The wise men come, they kneel before Jesus. What about Herod? What does he do? Look at verses 3 through 8, and then we'll jump down again to verse 12. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. 
for from you shall come a ruler who, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now jump down to verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, the wise men departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So if Jesus is the king of all nations, if Jesus is the king of the whole world, what does that mean? It means you're not in charge of anything. And anybody who thinks they're in charge are not only deluded, but they are destined to be unseated by Jesus. This is Herod's fear. There's a new king on the scene, a king of Israel. And guys are showing up from Persia to know this king. And he doesn't like this idea. Anybody who thinks they're in charge is not and will be unseated by Jesus. He is the king over all kings, the Lord over all lords. And that includes whatever little fiefdoms you have where you believe that you are the king. So this message of the worldwide kingship of Jesus is offensive to people who want to be in control, to people who enjoy the benefits of power, to people who find security in their position. But at the same time, this message of the worldwide kingship of Jesus invites our worship. It invites our joyful submission. But most of us don't want to submit to anyone or to anything. Submission's a bad word, right? Live free or die. That's the the motto of New Hampshire, where my wife comes from, I have a sweatshirt that says, live free or die with a big New Hampshire on, all right? But when we look at how the wise men submit to King Jesus, it's not a thing of fear. It's not a thing of duty or obligation. When they submit to Jesus, it's a thing of joy. It's a thing of beauty. Look again at verses 10 and 11. When they saw the star... The one that proclaims their king is here. What do they do? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Just like with the angels, we saw fear upon fear upon fear. Here we see joy upon joy upon joy. And what did they do? Verse 11, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Generosity joy, freedom in submitting to King Jesus. To submit to King Jesus might feel like losing control of your life, but it's actually experiencing freedom for the first time. Submitting to Jesus as the Lord of your life is being set free to live your life as it was intended to be lived. Every day getting up and saying, I'm not in charge of me and no one and nothing else is, but Jesus Christ and his agenda, Lord, how can I serve you today? That, my brothers and sisters, is freedom. That is the life that we are called to live. One day, the whole world, all creation, will kneel before Jesus regardless of their attitude about him because he is the king of the world. He's the king of you, whether you recognize it or not. But he invites you to him 
and in him to find joy and freedom by giving him your life. Now, that is the central message of this text, that Jesus is the unrivaled king of the world. But there's a secondary theme that I want to chew on as well. You know, the story tends to focus on the Magi, Herod, and the Holy Family. But there's another group of characters who show up. And oddly, they're a group of people that you and I, Faith Presbyterian Church, actually share a lot in common with. We should feel a personal connection with them. Why? Because they're Bible people. And at FPC, we like to think of ourselves as Bible people. We love the Bible. We believe the Bible. We read the Bible together as families, as individuals. We read it a lot in church. A church member actually gave me this tie for Christmas, which has the Gospel of John written on it in Greek, right? So clearly, we're Bible people. So let's peer in on the Bible people in our text. Look back at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, that's them, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So when the Magi show up and tell their story, Herod is upset. And this is uh, no anomaly for Herod. If you look at other historical sources besides the Bible, you learn quickly that Herod was a very paranoid man. He actually had his wife and two sons killed because he believed that they were angling to get the throne from him. He was a man obsessed with power. So you can imagine how he felt when these guys show up from another country looking for the new king who has just been born. So what does he do? In a panic, probably in a rage, he calls his resident theologians. He calls the chief priests and scribes, and he asks these Bible people a question, where is this king? Where is this Messiah supposed to be born, according to the Old Testament? He's asking so that he can go kill him. And how do the Bible people respond? What text is it? Did you notice in verse 6? What text is it that they quote? You'll notice there aren't any cross-references, at least not in my ESV. The reason why is it's not a clear text. What they quote is actually a mishmash of two texts from Micah chapter 5 and 2 Samuel chapter 5. And that's not necessarily bad to do to read two scriptures together, but why did they do it and how did they do it? So these supposed Bible people are very careful in how they respond to Herod's question. And they answer Herod's question and they also tell him what he wants to hear. Their response to him does say, yes, the birthplace was foretold to be Bethlehem. But then they try to alleviate any fears and paranoia that Herod might have. Because what does their not-so-quote say? Look at it again in verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd whom? My people Israel. They are, in essence, telling Herod... Herod, there's nothing to worry about, man. It's going to be all right. No need for a violent rampage today. You see, the Messiah will be chief among the rulers of Judah, a shepherd of Israel. So there's no threat to Rome here, definitely no threat to your throne. But that's not the story of the Old Testament. What have they done? 
rather than agreeing with a clear theme that you see throughout the Bible about the universal kingship of Christ, they spin the truth to satisfy the preferences of the guy in power. This still happens today. (laughs) Wherever there are power structures, whether it's politics or wherever it is in your world, this sort of thing still happens. But don't miss this irony, how topsy-turvy the whole Christmas story is. We have Gentiles, probably Persian astrologers or mystics, who likely don't have the Bible in their language, and they seem to understand the message of Jesus. On the other hand, you have Jewish Bible scholars who have the word of God and they don't believe the message of Jesus. In fact, they pervert and twist the scriptures to stroke the ego of those in power. And what is the lesson that we find in this ironic contrast? We need to be the kind of Bible people who, when faced faced with a situation like this, know the scriptures and are not afraid to simply speak its truth. The scribes and chief priests cowered before power and did not speak the truth. So how can you and I be prepared to do the opposite? To know the scriptures and to stand firmly upon them. Well, first, you have to know the scriptures. If you want to faithfully serve King Jesus, you must know the scriptures. Now, these chief priests and scribes arguably probably knew the scriptures. But they failed to stand up to Herod. My question's even simpler than that. Do you know the scriptures so that you might stand up for the truth? Followers of King Jesus must know the scriptures. And there are three reasons why that I can see clearly. First, we must know the scriptures because of what they are. And what are they? The scriptures are a revelation of God to his people. Do you want to know God? Do you want to have a relationship with him? Then you must know the scriptures. The scriptures reveal God himself to us. Listen, you cannot know God apart from his scriptures. The Bible is an essential channel and platform for that relationship. So if you don't know the scriptures, you don't know God. If you want to faithfully follow and serve King Jesus, then you must know the scriptures. So that's the first reason you must know the scriptures, because of what they are, a revelation of who God is. But second, we must know the scriptures because of who you are. And who are you? A disciple of Christ. When Jesus gave his great commission to the disciples at the end of Matthew, what did he tell them? He said, go therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them what? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? It means to know and to live out everything that Jesus has commanded us. It means to observe, obey, to know and trust, attend to everything that Jesus has said. So I'll narrow it down from the Bible to just what Jesus said, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Do you know them that you might follow Christ? The only way to know what Jesus has said is to know the Scriptures. So are the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, a regular part of your reflection and consideration? If you're a disciple of Jesus, 
You must attend to the scriptures. Here's a third reason why you as a Christian must know the scriptures. Well, because of whom you will meet this year, both seekers and opposers. So Jesus in Matthew 28 says, go tell all the nations. Interesting bookend with this story about the wise men. Go tell all nations what I've commanded you. And this year, you're going to meet some people like the Magi. Unbelievers who don't know scripture, but God is still drawing them to himself. Might even be little ones in your family. So what must you do to help them, but direct them to the scriptures? You cannot love those seeking ones well if you don't know the scriptures, because therein we find the God of our world. So if you want to faithfully serve King Jesus, you've got to be prepared for those relationships. You've got to know the scriptures. But you're probably going to run into some folks like Herod too, opposers of Christ. And in that circumstance, you better bet you need to know the scriptures. The guys in our text knew the scriptures, but they cowered and cravenly fear before the authority of men. I hope better things for you. But do you know the scriptures to be able to stand up and to speak the truth when you, when you need to? If you want to faithfully serve King Jesus, you must know the scriptures. So do you know them? Do you have a practice of regularly reading the Bible by yourself or with others? Have you learned how to read the Bible and understand it? Are you shaping your life according to the Bible? Now, I real, fully realize I've been doing this long enough that this whole second point probably is, for many of us, stirring up a lot of guilt. I think, oh, here he goes again. Here's my New Year's resolution sermon. He's going to pick on me because I haven't had a good habit of, of, of reading the Bible. That's not my goal. And, and those of you who know me, I'm not going to get into the whole story now, will know that for most of my Christian life, uh, a discipline of Bible reading was very hard for me. Um, it was not something that came easily or naturally, uh, and I felt a lot of guilt about it. So that's not my goal this morning. My goal is this at the beginning of this new year, to invite you to simply consider whether you know the scriptures and what's one thing you could do this year to try to change that. In that second point, I'm trying to establish the why. It is essential for disciples of Jesus to know the scriptures, and you can't know it if you never read it, right? And so I want to encourage you to think through how you can know the scriptures differently in 2023. If you want to faithfully serve King Jesus, you have to know the scriptures. So what can you do to strengthen your knowledge of the scriptures? Here are three keys that I think can help you this year. First, read them digestibly. I'm going to unpack these in a second. Second, read scripture in relation to God. And third, read scripture in relation to this community. So first, what do I mean by read the scriptures digestibly? The purpose of reading the Bible is digesting it, right? To eat it. Not to bite off more than you can chew, but enough to chew on it, consider it, understand it, and then live according to it. So if you have never read the Bible consistently before, trying to read the whole Bible in a year this year, that might be too much. Especially if you're reading Genesis to Revelation. I've seen a lot of people try that, and it's tough. I've done it like three times. It was very hard. One of those times, I think I stretched it out over two years. I started aiming for one, and I made it uh, in two. So don't start with that challenge if you're not reading the Bible at all right now. Instead, maybe read one paragraph a day from the Gospel of John. And then when you finish John, move on to Ephesians. And then after Ephesians, you want to do some Old Testament, go check out Genesis or Exodus. They're long, but 
you'll get through them just fine. Find something digestible. Read it and really chew on it. Pray about it. Journal or something. It's asking God, how can I obey your word? So that would be a more digestible approach. Read the scriptures digestibly. So think about how you could do that this year. Maybe now even write down an idea that you might like to try to read it digestively. I'll give you a second. So first, read the scriptures digestively, but secondly, read them in relation to God. What does that mean? Reading the Bible is not primarily an academic exercise or even a religious one. Reading the Bible is a relational exercise. So when you read the Bible, realize that it is an interaction with God. God is speaking to you when you read. And and I'm not saying he's speaking generally. When we read the Bible, he speaks. No, the very words are the word of God being spoken to you. God is speaking directly to you when you read the Bible so that you might know him and respond to him. So when you read the Bible, it's not a box to check off. It's not something to learn. It's an engagement with the God of the universe and the king of your life. So approach it that way. So how could you read the Bible this year, not only digestibly, but also in a way that reflects its relational purpose? If you have any ideas, I'll give you a second to write it down. I'm hot, so I'm going to get a sip of my water. Lastly, read Scripture in relation to this community. So you are not meant to be a lone ranger Christian, even when it comes to your Bible reading. It's important when we read the Bible to do it in relationship with other Christians. You, have, you really have no idea how many times when I read something complicated in the Bible and then I text Todd to ask Todd, what does this mean? <laughs> or when I get to the office, I bug Chris when he's trying to do his work. I'm like, hey, you want to talk about this for a second? Together, we see God's truth more clearly. This is why we spend time with each other. This is why we develop friendships. This is why we go to Sunday school. This is why we have Bible studies and discipleship groups. If you want to get to know the Bible better this year, get engaged in one of these groups or have intentional conversations with the other people in this room. I'm here. I'm happy to have those conversations. Your shepherding elder is available. Talk to each other about the Bible. So how can you connect more deeply with this community so you can have those conversations? I want to challenge you. If you've never come to Sunday school before, it's right after church. You could do it right now, and, and you can still get out in time for lunch. This is a great opportunity for your family for, as adults, but also your kids to not only learn about the Bible, but to talk to other Christians about it. It's a great space to learn the scriptures, to read them together in community. So I encourage you and I invite you to join us even today. There's no reason not to. If you want to faithfully serve King Jesus, you must know the scriptures. So do you? Do you know the scriptures? If not, let this year be the year. Consider these three keys to cultivating your knowledge of scripture and consider how you can engage with the Bible anew in 2023. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It reveals to us you, life, Hope, everything that we need to live life as it should be is revealed to us in your word, and we thank you for that. And now, Lord, I pray for everyone who's here.